Okay, y'all, open your Bibles to Judges 6. I'm in a quadri here. I don't know how to do it. I tried to, it's so long, it's 40 verses, we can't read the whole thing. So I tried to do a, like a, a Jeff's commentary with reading, and, and Slim just informed me right before the service, by the way, that it was a little too long too. So we're going to have to figure out what to do on this particular passage. So here's how we're going to begin, though. Uh, on Friday, I read a story about Kate. Uh, Kate is a committed Christian. She is a corporate high flyer. I mean, she's extremely successful. And the article talked about how the stress of her work and the strain of maintaining her success and her image drove her to escape, drove her to seek some sort of release from the pressure, the high octane work that she was involved in. And so she started uh, finding escape by drinking at least on a minimum one liter of alcohol every day. She said that she would add to this, this constant struggle, that there was this self-imposed pressure to keep her winning streak going, her success going in her career, and at least in the image of, in the eyes of everybody else, the image that she's successful and always successful, that that is always intact. Uh, So that drove her, those two combinations of just a high-octane career, the stresses and strain of that, trying to maintain the success and the achievement that she's doing in her eyes and others' eyes, drove her into a deep depression. So now she started adding on to her dependency upon alcohol. She said she started adding strong antidepressants, tranquilizers, beta blockers, sleeping pills. She said, I tried everything to beat the bottle. I did psychiatrists, I did psychologists, I went to every support group you can go to and I faithfully attended all the support groups and nothing worked. Kate was trapped in a cycle of harmful and painful beliefs about herself, thoughts, emotions, and behavior. And yet still, this was amazing to me in the article, yet still in all of it, to the rest of the world, to her church, and even to her own husband, she had it all together. Now, not all stories like this have happy endings, but this one does. In fact, Kate experiences freedom from her need to be successful in her eyes and the eyes of others. She starts experiencing that. She also starts experiencing freedom from the cocktails of escape that she was involved in, alcohol, drugs, and Tons of chemicals. She started experiencing, she said in her, she started experiencing healing in the way that she believed things about God and about herself. We would call this the heart. The Bible would call this the heart. That her actual thoughts and emotions started being healed. And were no longer this runaway, deranged and dark and depressing and just anxiety ridden thoughts and feelings, she started having healing take place in that area. And the question I'm reading this, and then, and obviously that led to different behavior because, you know, you change the heart, you change the behavior, right? You don't change your life by just changing your behavior. So I started thinking, well, how how does that kind of change happen? I mean, how do you deeply change like that? You know, usually we'll, we'll run to the New Testament and try to find some passage and then we, we write a book about it and we sell millions. Do you know what's interesting? Judges 6 gives us the answer. The Old Testament gives us the answer because the answer is ancient. Ancient. 
there since the dawn of time. It's never changed. It's been there for every generation, even though we miss it. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, I am going to read 1 through 16, and then I'm just going to give you a commentary on the rest, to the best of my cliff note ability. All right, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and and the Lord gave them in the hand of Midian. This is all familiar stuff. Yada, 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 right? And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. They couldn't live out in the open anymore. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the the Easterners, the people from the east, would come up against them, swoop down on them on their camels, basically. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, no ox, no donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents and they would come like locusts in number. I mean, you should be thinking like the plague Exodus. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, this prophet, this unknown prophet, unnamed, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, look, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you, man, you just didn't listen to me. You didn't listen to my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under Terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress, that's fascinating, to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring you up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might, verse 12, of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to them, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Man, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. Did you see what was happening in there? What's fascinating is that the angel of the Lord all of a sudden was a messenger, a human-like figure, but then he started transmuting or transforming into a God-like figure. It's almost like he was human and God at the same time. Fascinating. And so Gideon starts getting wind of this, and he says, man, I need to test out this identity, thief. So he creates this huge offering, he offers it to the Lord, and then verse 17, that's why he says, show me a sign that it's you who speak to me. He offers it, and then this fire miracle happens. It's like right out of Exodus in the burning bush with Moses. Boom, it's consumed, and his eyes are open, and he's like, oh, no. I've been talking to God. I mean, can you imagine? You know, the Lord is with you. No, you're not. 
That's what he just said. The Lord wants you to do this. <laughs> no way. It can't be done. So that's when we get 22 through 24. And Gideon perceived that he was the, it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. <laughs> it's not what you expect. Do not fear. You will not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, Man, the Lord is peace. And it stands there to this day. Then the rest of it, I just want you to see, it's really fascinating. Don't get the order messed up here. He has a personal encounter of God's grace. Now what does he do? Well, now he's able to actually repent. Did you get the order? It's not repent and get God's grace. It is an experience of God's grace, totally undeserved. Now he can cut down the idols in his land and in his life. There's a little trick there to it. Did you see it? His dad is the main idol center of worship. So now he's going to go against his dad's favor. So it's a big deal, right? His dad's favor, possibly his inheritance. He's going to become a nothing because in the ancient Near East, your family, your dad was everything. So the tension's built again. What's going to happen? Now, Gideon got all this grace, right? Gideon's dad got nothing but a pole being cut down and his son going, right? And he's converted by the power of God and stands up against the whole town, says, don't you lay a hand on my son, right? And then we get to the sign of the fleece as it ends, and everybody thinks, oh, poor Gideon, you know, he's back to casting, picking straws. Should I do it? Well, we already know God told him to do it. He already knows what God's will is. So what is he after there? He still needs more of God. He needs more assurance. Do you need more assurance? The fleece is nothing more than what you and I have today called the scripture and the sacrament. He just needs more of God. And that's the story of Gideon, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For your word, we thank you that you ride on the wings of your word, on the chariot of your word. And you come in all power, and then you come in a still voice. You come the way you know we need you to come. So I ask that you would come for each of us today. That you would speak just as clearly to us as you did to Gideon. And I ask this in your name. Amen. All right, the Gideon story is the longest story in all of Judges. It's 100 verses. Guess what comes in second? Samson. 96 verses, for short. It's good competition. These two stories are the heart of the book. And so the brightest theology in all of Judges is packed into these two stories. The highest potency of God's power and his, his light and his life and his change are packed into these stories. All the driving ideas, the main ideas, the central messages of Judges are illuminated and radiated most fully in these two stories. So the question is, I mean, even your Bible has the call of Gideon as a, as a chapter title or a section title there. What's the purpose of this section? What is the call of Gideon after in your life? 
Why is it here? What's the impact of it? What's it trying to do to you? Here's what it's trying to do to you and me. Here's what it's trying to do to the original Israelite reader, as well as the Israelites that are actually participating in the story. And now those that read the scripture, read this passage for years to come, and those that will come after us. The goal will always be the same. You know what it is? Here it is. Before your problems in life change, before your marriage problems change, before your family problems change, before your church problems change, before your community problems change, before your city problems change, you need to change. You need to change first. Before there is ever a national renewal, there must be an individual spiritual renewal. Before Israel the nation is delivered in the story, Israel the people need to be delivered in the story. Do you see what's happening here? So the call of Gideon is all about starting with you and me. It's not about your spouse. It's not about your nosy neighbor. It's not about your lousy boss. It's not about your troubled child. It's not about Susie Satan Church and Bible Bob and Church and Critical Christian Church. Because they're all there. It's about you and it's about me. All right? So the question is, how does that happen? Well, Gideon is representing all of Israel here. So he's representing all of Israel's need for deliverance. He's the classic. It's like God says, I'm going to highlight one Israelite to show the rest of Israel what needs to happen in this Israelite's life. And thereby in highlighting this one Israelite, he's saying to all people in all generations, this is what you need to have happen in your life. And so Gideon represents every individual Israelite's need for spiritual renewal. And the first 10 verses are just high definition display of that need. And it's stuff that we're all going, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. We've heard this. It's the seven cycles of sin, right? We're all into it. We all know it. But what's fascinating here is that it's almost like the Bible saying, no, you really don't. Because I'm going to spend 10 verses trying to tell you exactly what's going on. 10 verses that you might not have gotten in the first three deliverances. And it's a worse, it's a worse problem than Kushan Risha theme. It's a worse situation than Fatty Eglon. And it's worse than that rapist Sisera. I mean, in verse 1, you get the familiar cycle, sin cycle, right? They did what was evil on the side of the Lord. You and I now know that means they forgot God. And when you forget God, you don't just forget God. Now you forge someone to take his place. So you forget, and then you forge many gods. And then the text shows us what the next cycle is, right? We got this down. You should have this memorized. It's like, okay, then God gives them over and lets them have what they want. Okay, you want it. I'll let you have it. And then what happens? Well, whenever we get what we want like that, the many gods end up hurting us, bringing lots of pain in our life. Instead of, instead of the many gods bringing flourishing and creation and life, they bring decreative forces into our lives and they tear down and they break down psychologically, they break down our person, they break down our bodies, they break down the economy, they break down relationships, they break down marriages. I mean, how, how, how good a marriage do you think Gideon's having in a cave 
You can't even go for a walk in the open. Right? All right, so in verse 2 through 5, we get this word, Midian overpowers Israel, complete dominance. Midianites aren't interested in political control of Israel. You know what they're interested in? Sucking every last drop of life out of them commercially, economically. They want to exploit them like nobody's business. And so if you're, uh, it's likened to a locust plague, right? Locusts come swarming in with these infinite multitudes. When a locust plague hits an area and leaves, it looks like Death Valley. There's nothing living left. And so they come in like a locust plague. Their abuse is like a locust plague. If you're found out in the open, you get abused, you get raped, you get murdered, you get pillaged, you get stolen from. The economy, forget the economy. Forget the stock market crash in the 1920s. This is a complete obliteration of the economy. They have no more economy. The great area that in the Jezreel Valley that, Gideon, that Barak and Deborah won for them, that great fertile area, rich Fertile area, everyone lived in there. They're no longer living in there. They can't have their homes in there. They're in the caves like animals, hiding in inaccessible places to human beings. They're starving, they're humiliated, they're lost. Verse 6 just says, man, if you want to picture into what Israel's national soul looks like and an individual Israelite soul looks like, Israel was brought very low because of the Midian. How does Israel change? How do you change? So far, everything in Judges is according to a pattern that we're all familiar with, and we even know what happens next. Verse 6, right? The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Oh, we got that one. We know that. That's, this is all. Oh, ching. Yep. They cry out to the Lord for help. Now, now is when it gets interesting. Now the pattern breaks. And if you were an Israelite and your name is Jedediah, this is where you stop yarning in your fam- yawning in your family devotions and you quickly sit up and you go, uh, what did you just read, Dad? Uh, would you read that again? And your dad, let's say his name's Joash, he says, sure, son, I'll read it again. Verse 17, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent... What's expected? A deliverer to save them because that's what he's done every single time. But here, instead of sending a deliverer to bring about change, he sends a sermon. Wow. I don't know about you, But when I think of the great, massive, life-changing events to happen in a personal life, of all the epic things that God can do in reaching somebody and renewing somebody and restoring somebody and grabbing somebody and getting someone's attention and actually healing their thoughts and their emotions and reaching deep into their life and making himself real, I don't think he sends a sermon. That's powerful. Do you see what the content of the sermon is? It has two points. Man, that's a great sermon. Two points. Point one, it's actually, point one is eight down to ten and down to the last five words. So all of it except for five words is point one. 
And point one is, this is what God has done. This is what he did for you in Israel. And the Egyptians. This is what he did when he fought for you in this promised land. This is what he's doing right now and what he's done for you right now. And then point two, it's just five, six simple words. This is what you've done. This is what God has done. This is what you've done. And the issue is, what have you done? You've replaced God. You've gone after many gods to try to see what they can do for you. And you have forgotten what God has done for you. I want you to not miss this. This is so, so important. Notice that before Israel can be delivered, they have to understand why they need to be delivered. You catch that? God sends a a sermon. He sends his word to be able to communicate. What's in the Psalms? One of, the, one of everyone's favorite, well, maybe it was your favorite song growing up from somebody. I can't remember her name right now. My light, your word is a light unto my path. you remember that? The word of God shines beams on your path. The word of God shoots life and light into your life. The word of God has divine life and power in it. And it's a beam shooter of light. Boom. And so what God's word does here is it shoots a beam of light into places, into their lives and their thoughts and their hearts that they never would have seen before. And that's this. Here's why you need to be delivered. Because up to this point, you think you need to be delivered most from your hard life. You need national independence. You need your economy to get back in. You need your bankroll and your bank account to get into the positive. You need your fighting with your spouse and your children to stop. You need the conflict in the church and in your career to get over with. And God says, no, you need to see that I'm after you first. You need to see what the fire is that's producing all this suffocating smoke in your life. You need to see what you've done so you can see what God has done for you. And what everyone in Judges, what Judges is telling us over and over again, what everyone has done is that they have forgotten God, what he's done, and run after many gods thinking that they're going to give you something instead. And why must Israel, why must we see this? Why must we see why we need deliverance, why we need spiritual renewal? Because if we don't see it, we're never going to get to the root of the real issues in our life. We're going to be stuck in a cycle of sin. And we're never going to know why we're stuck in it. We're going to run around for all kinds of remedies and solutions, but we're never going to get down to the real root of why this is here in the first place. We have to get down to the many gods under our problems and our sin. When the Puritans would see their many gods in life, they had this phrase that they would say. When they would see the stubborn, they would have the stubborn cycle of sin in their life. They'd get stuck in sin. And the Puritan would say, when they began to see the, the God replacements in their life, the substitute saviors in their life, or what judges would say, the many gods, the Baals and the Asherahs in their life, you know what they would say? That speaks to That speaks to reality. It touches reality. And we need to have our reality touched. And God shines a beam of light 
send in a sermon to show us. Now, there are two powerful applications immediately that happen right now, right where we're at, for experiencing spiritual renewal in life. In other words, how do you change? How are you going to change? How am I going to change? How does Israel change? First, listen to God's word. Simple, isn't it? It's unbelievable. He sends a sermon. The simple reality of listening unleashes otherworldly realities in our life. It's like listening, all of a sudden God goes, and he releases life and power into you. He beams his light into our life by listening. So we listen to God by listening to his word. So get the order right. Listen first, speak second. If we listen first and speak second, you're actually going to enjoy your time of reading the scriptures more than you will. You're going to be engaged more because you're going to realize it's not about you having to maintain the relationship. God maintains it. All you have to do is listen. He shoots his beams of light. He reveals himself. He breaks in. He makes himself known. He comes for you. Second, you don't improve your prayer life drastically. You know why? Because if you pray first and listen second, you're not going to pray very long because you're not going to have anything to say. Because listening to God is God speaking to you and God's speech to you and me is primary speech. Prayer or answering him back is secondary speech. It's dependent on primary speech. So when God speaks to us, now we have something to say back to him. And that'll reinvigorate and refresh and renew us spiritually when that dynamic gets there. So you need to develop a plan of listening that works for you, and that's very, very key. Works for you. In other words, we are going to listen to my mentor, Dr. Hannah. If you set your goals low enough, you'll hit them every time. You don't have realistic plans. You overachievers. You people that have all these massive plans of what you're going to do, it doesn't last. And so then you get discouraged and you bail out. So you need to have a realistic listening plan. So if you fall asleep when you read, drink coffee. And if you don't drink coffee, start. It's that simple. I mean, if every time you start getting the Bible and you're doing, you're doing that, it's time to drink coffee. All right? Simple. Very, very simple. Uh, if Bible reading plans stress you out and push you to achieve instead of listen, throw them away. Get rid of those read the Bible in a year plans. They drive me crazy anyway, and I shouldn't say that because this is taped. <laughs> so now I'm going to be called all kinds of things. I don't do those. You know what I do? I stick to one thought unit per reading. I listen better. So when I'm in the letters, I'm in the epistles, a one thought unit is what? One paragraph. Can you listen to one thought unit, one paragraph? And think about it and listen deeply about it and meditate on it and reflect on it and toss it around in your soul? If you go to the narratives, if you go to most of the Old Testament or you go to the Gospels, read one story. Don't read the whole four or five stories in that unit. 
What happens to 10 points and 10 stories and 10 wisdom ideas? Nothing. That's what. Nothing. Because nobody remembers 10. Nobody remembers 3. But you remember 1. When you get into a psalm, you read one psalm. Unless you're at Psalm 119. Right? But then Psalm 119 takes every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and has a section. So just take one letter at a time. Simple. Even they knew that. And they were trying to help us. A, B, right? Uh, The idea of wisdom. Take one idea of wisdom. Take one master metaphor in the wisdom literature. You've got lots of wisdom going at you in all kinds of places in Proverbs and Song of Solomon. I mean, it's just too much. Grab one master metaphor and image and reflect on that. All right. The second thing, practical application, right? Identify where you're stuck. Where are you stuck? Where am I stuck? I'm stuck in places. Are you? Where are you stuck in a particular sin? Or as judges would say, where are you stuck in a cycle of sin? You just can't get out. You're trapped. According to judges, we get stuck in cycles of sin because we haven't identified the mini God behind the sin yet. According to judges, we get stuck in cycles of sin because we haven't dug up the root from where that sticky sin finds all its strength and all its power. According to Judges, we, haven't, we get stuck in cycles of sin because we fail to see where sin gets its power and its reluctance to change in the root of a mini-God. It's one thing to know you're a liar and you're stuck in a cycle of lying, and it's another thing to know why you're lying. It's another thing to know what the root And what is so reluctant to change about your addiction to lying? For instance, if you start seeing that, gosh, I lie because I'm trying to manage my image before people. I have a mini God of human approval and what people think of me. How freeing is that? Or I got to have this pleasure because it's going to give me security or I've got to have this false security because it's going to give me security and so I got to lie to get it. What would happen if the mini God of human approval and false securities get identified and replaced with the living God? You stop lying. I stop lying. How does Israel change? How does Gideon change? How do you change? All right, Gideon's hiding in a cave. He's making bread in a wine press. How does that happen? Because that's what you do in dark and desperate times. You do weird stuff. You really do. You hide in caves. You take what's meant to make really good wine and you try to make bread. It's just weird. It's not hard, is it? I mean, it's really not hard to feel the anxiety in this passage. I feel it all over this passage. Can you imagine? Do you feel his loneliness and his aloneness? 
I mean, who knows how big the cave is? It can't be that big. Probably can't get other people in there. Is he married? I don't know. Does she sleep in another cave? What about kids? Do they have kids? If they have kids, where are those kids? Everybody's isolated. Everybody's alone. There's stress. There's fear. There's anxiety. There's probably deep insecurity. How humiliated do you think he is? I'm a man and I'm in a cave and I can't do a thing about it. It's not easy. I mean, it's not hard to see that. And then watch what happens. The God, human-like angel, appears in the midst of that. The Lord is with you, O valiant, mighty man of valor. What? First time I read that. I tried to read it with new pair of eyes because I've heard this thing over and over again. I've heard this passage over and over again. And I thought, you know what I would think? Is this a joke? Are you making fun of me? Is this a lie? Are you telling the truth? What are you doing? You know what God's doing here is the power of all spiritual renewal, the power of how your life changes the power of how marriages change, the power of how damaging emotions and thoughts and behaviors change. You know what it is? Here it is. You ready? God is creating a mighty hero out of nothing. Nothing. God is declaring Gideon to be what he's not Gideon is anything but a hero here. And we could pick lots of words to describe him. It's like God is hovering over the chaos of a messed up person, deeply messed up. We're talking chronic stuff. We're talking addictive stuff. We're talking a really visibly messed up person. And he hovers over that messed up person And he, let there be light. He makes a total new identity. An identity that's not rooted in him at all. This is incredible. Gideon is anything but a mighty hero, but God says he is. If God says, you're a mighty hero, you're a mighty hero. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, God justifies the wicked. God makes acceptable the unaccepted. God comes to someone who's completely unrighteous, completely not what he's not, and he declares him to be righteous. God takes from nothing and makes a mighty warrior. When you And how does he do this? Do you see how he does this? By the power of his words alone. It's another way of saying by grace alone. And we kind of get a sneak preview of this weird kind of whatever this angel of the Lord is, but by the, the work and the performance and the heroic deeds of his son alone. 
When you trust in what God has done in his son, you get his son's medals. Jesus wins the medal of honor. Guess what? You're a medal of honor winner. Jesus is a mighty, valiant warrior. Guess what? You're a mighty, valiant warrior and hero. You get his performance. You get his heroic deeds. You get his wonderful acts. You get his phenomenal achievements. Yours. It's not a joke. God is renewing and saving and delivering a messed up person like you and me right there in those words. If you are a Christian, the application is pretty straightforward. If you're not a Christian, you should want this. You should want to be what you're not. If you are a Christian, here's your, your application. Be who you are. You are this, whether you feel like it or not. No matter how damaging your thoughts, no matter how damaging your emotions, this is a rock amidst the great chaotic deep that you stand on, that the waters can't touch. And when you begin to learn to stand on this new identity in Jesus, your thoughts begin to get healed. Your beliefs about yourself and God begin to get healed. Your harsh, depressive, anxious feelings begin to get healed. And they are only going to get healed there. So we are to rely on our new identity in Christ. That means rest in it, rely in it, rejoice in it, celebrate it, tell people about it, read about it, visualize it. Go to the images and the metaphors in scripture. When the, when the psalmist says he's your rock, he is your rock. You're on a rock. Not, just little, not these little boulders that you find in Colorado. I'm talking mountain range rocks. Your radiant acceptance is there. Your endless acceptance is there. Okay. Now, I should end, but I'm not. Just wanted to make that clear. Verse 12. We are to enter into verse 12. But you and I both know we have a trouble. We have a lot of trouble. There are a lot of barriers to believing that, aren't there, in our life? Do you believe that right now? How easy is it to believe this? How easy is it to believe this when you get criticized? How easy is it to believe it when you have runaway thoughts? How easy is it to believe it when you don't quite understand the reality of the deep self-absorption that's still in you as a Christian? How easy is it to believe this? Well, let me show you what happens here. There are two major barriers to us believing this and entering into it. And I'm so glad that God gives it to us. It's right here. Are you ready? The first one is we think we get verse 12, or verse 12 becomes true of us if we have good circumstances. If we have bad circumstances, we don't think this, this you can't believe that anymore. How do I know this? Because God says, the Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. Gideon says, no, he's not. Right? And why does Gideon say that? Because his life is hard. How do I know that? Verse 13, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Every time bad stuff happens to us, if we get the girl, if we get the job, if we get the promotion, we get the bank account, we get the house, the Lord is with me, O oh, valiant me. If we lose the girl and we lose the house, 
and we lose the job and we don't get recognized and nobody appreciates us and people criticize us. The Lord is not with me. And I'm a loser. Second barrier here, did you see what it is? Our performance. Our performance keeps us from entering into verse 12. How do I know this? Verse 14, go in this might of yours, words of verse 12, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. I do, not, did I, do I not send you? Gideon says, I'm not good enough. <laughs> My performance is lousy. Verse 15, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon's performance determines whether God is with him and whether he has a positive self-identity. Right now, he's extremely humiliated and inferior. But what if? What if his performance changed? What if he was like Othniel, the ideal deliverer? You know what would happen to Gideon? He'd have a superiority complex. You know what he would say when God shows up? I was waiting for you. Of course I'm the deliverer. I'm going to save the city. I'm not saying, but there might have been a little bit of that in me when I got here. Maybe. So what does God do? He's committed to you. He wants you to get what's already true. He's already declared it to be true. It's by grace. He wants you to get it. How do you get it? He gets after you and he makes you believe it. How? Well, that's what the rest of the story happens, right? He just continues to reveal more and more of himself and more and more of what he's done as the story goes on. So the story unfolds and, and Gideon builds this offering and the, the miraculous fire strikes and his eyes open up and Gideon goes, oh no, I've been talking to God. And the first words out of God's mouth are, peace, Gideon. I am with you, O valiant warrior. And Gideon says, The Lord is my peace. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, would you be our peace this morning? Lord, we thank you that in our time of need, you gave us a sermon, and you gave us your word. Lord, would you use this morning's sermon uh, to speak to us in this time of need? To not just bring a deliverer, but a prophet, recounting uh, the victories, the many, many victories you've, you've accomplished throughout the ages. Many, many deliverances you've accomplished, and mainly in your son Jesus. And so, Lord, uh, would that become more real to us as we uh, continue to worship at the Lord's table, would this not just be bread and wine or juice, but would it be a, a moment to hear your word preached to us? Would it be a physical sermon that we'd remember and we would partake in and taste and touch and smell your grace and make it more real to us? And Lord, we also ask you would bless our tithes and offerings uh, that we would continue uh, to share this message, to share the, these words and your sermon here in Waco and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.